Last week in church service, I kind of challenged you to think about the power of God in a different way, to talk about the power of God. And one of the things I read to you was from Ephesians 4.16. And this is a, a vision that our district superintendent uh, has put on, God's put on his heart, and it's definitely been on my heart, which is why we preached through the book of Ephesians earlier this year. The vision of the church coming together as each part does its work. In Ephesians 4.16, it says, From Jesus, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows it and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. From Jesus, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Every supporting ligament, every joint in the body, it's vital that every supporting ligament, every person in a body of Christ finds out what God's calling them to do and does it. It's vitally important. The church will not grow in health or in size, which is much less important than health. And there are big churches that are unhealthy, right? The church will not grow until each member of the body of Christ goes to the Father and says, what have you put in me to contribute to your body, to your work on earth? And then to take the faith-filled risk to stick your neck out and do it. That's the way the body grows. Pastors and teachers are great. In fact, right before the passage I just read, it talks about how God has given the church pastors and teachers. But your pastors and teachers better point you to being the body and not point to themselves and say, I am the body, I am the head, I am the church. That's not the way it works. That's not the way God grows his church. It's an organic thing that God has done in filling uh, his people with his Holy Spirit and forming the body of Christ on earth. The witness of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, continues following his departure because he sent his spirit. And it's better, Jesus said, it's better for us that he leave because if he leaves, he will send his spirit into all his people. And we will do greater works because there is more of us with the spirit of Christ in us doing what God calls us to. So I challenged you last week in regard to the power of God. Ask God. Go to the Father. The Father loves it when we come to him and ask him things. The Bible is constantly telling the sincere seeker of Christ, come and ask me if you're not clear on something. It says in James, if you need wisdom, go to the Father. The Father loves it when we ask him with sincerity. Go to the Father, I said last week, and ask him, what have you put in me to contribute to the body? And we know from from this verse in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, it says, we have been given the divine nature by God. And we are participants in the divine nature through Jesus Christ. So if you don't think you have anything inside of you, you're wrong as a Christian. You have something inside of you. You have the divine nature. You are participants in the divine nature through Jesus Christ. It's in you. Go to the Father. Ask him, what are you calling me to do? And then take a faith-filled risk to put it into practice. And as we do these things, we will see the power of God in our church. As we do this, we will see the power of God in our church. I think about Elijah his showdown with the, with the uh, prophets of Baal in, on Mount Carmel. He put his neck out there. He put himself on the line. Uh, he said, my God is the true God. Your God is a false God. We'll make two sacrifices. And whoever's God answers and sends fire to consume the sacrifice is the true God. The prophets of Baal called out to their false God. They cut themselves. They screamed. They begged. Nothing happened because he's not a real God. But the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, 
Elijah's God. Not only did he send fire, he consumed the water that Elijah had thrown on the sacrifice for good measure, just to prove his point a little bit more, consumed the water, and the rocks. Everything melted down. Because Elijah took a faith-filled risk, he put his neck out there, and God showed up in power. God's power is attracted, if anything, to human weakness, to people that rely on him, who, uh, who stick their neck out, who take a faith-filled risk, his power is drawn to that. And I believe that just like the Apostle Paul, who, who intentionally did not preach with persuasive words when he first started his ministry so that everyone's confidence would rest on God's power, not on human wisdom, just like the Apostle Paul, uh, just like any of the people in the Bible, like Abraham, who God said, leave your homeland, leave the lifestyle that you have now and go to a place I will show you. And he just left and went. God's power is shown through that. So I just want to continue to encourage you. Ask the Father what he's placed in you and then figure out with God what is a way that I can act on that and take a faith-filled risk to be obedient to you. And we will see the power of God. I think about, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for every man, woman, and child. How is the gospel so powerful? in our weakness, in our inability to save ourselves, in our futility (laughs) to be saved, utterly weak, and in fact, even in opposition to God, enemies of God, God's power was made evident in the gospel, which saved us, which transformed us, which filled us with the Holy Spirit, which turned us into not only children of God, but co-heirs in Christ, members of the body of Jesus. God's power is just made evident in our weakness. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross. You will see the power of God in your life, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. This, this talk about the power of God, about all these different kind of things, is, is situated in a series we're doing about God called Tell Me All Your Thoughts on God. I know my friend John, he, he knows the, the reference. So I, I, there's one person that understands why I called the series this. But this is God's faithfulness, uh, part seven of our series, Tell Me All Your Thoughts on God. And obviously, I feel extremely qualified to talk about who God is. <laughs> it's, it's a huge topic that God put on my heart, and I think it's a really worthwhile thing to, to look into. But uh, I've just been relying on God to teach me about who he is, even as I've been preparing these sermons to teach me and to show me. And I can tell you that when you look into the things that are true of God, it changes you. It really changes you. And this series has been great for me. I hope it's been great for you. What we're looking at today is God's faithfulness. There is no one who is faithful like our God. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. God's faithfulness is unlike human faithfulness. Human faithfulness is based on being faithful to a person or faithful to an object And uh, we are really unreliable. We are very unreliable. So our faithfulness is likewise many times unreliable. We could just be in the wrong kind of mood and that day decide to be unfaithful all of a sudden. We change like that all the time. We're waffly. We're faithless. Situations change. But God's faithfulness is not based on a person or an object. God's faithfulness is based on himself. God is faithful based on himself. 
So when God makes promises, he makes promises based on himself. And we know from the scriptures in Malachi, it says, I am the Lord, I do not change. God is unchanging. So when we say that God is faithful, it's a wholly different level than what we think of when we think of human faithfulness. It's a whole different category. In fact, it it would almost be good if we had a different word to describe it because it's the most reliable thing you can imagine. God is faithful based on God's self, not on a person that changes or a situation that changes or a flight of fancy, uh, which, which we are susceptible to as people. God does not change. Those of you who know me know I love to walk in cemeteries. I really do. And particularly, my, my parents' house is situated in Braalban on the Secondaga Lake. And there's a cemetery on like a, it looks like a little peninsula of land, and there's a cemetery on that hill. And I love to go to that cemetery. You'll think this is very strange. On my days off, sometimes I'll take a couple hours and go to that cemetery and walk around. And I love cemeteries. I love to look at the, the, the graves and, and the dates on the on the graves, and think about the lives that uh, those people lived. And that cemetery has graves that go all the way back to the 1800s. So it's a very, it's a lot for your imagination to chew on. I often visit the grave of a friend of mine who passed away in 2005. And I think about God's faithfulness through his story and how God saved him right at the end of his life uh, in 2005 in a very miraculous way. I stroll away from my friend's grave, and I, I notice uh, the cemetery plots my father has purchased. <laughs> they have D's on them, and there's three of them, curiously. So I'm not really sure which of us were, are going to be buried with them, <laughs> but there's only room for three. There's five kids in my family. Mom, dad, and whoever couldn't find a spouse. <laughs> you know, it's kind of creepy, actually, and... Uh, so I took a, the ultimate selfie in that cemetery. You know, I kind of took a picture, sent it to my, my, my parents to, to remind them that I called dibs on that. And I, I pray that that does not happen soon, because I really like to be alive. But at any rate, I love cemeteries. I love to look at these, these graves and imagine the lives of the people who lived. And this last time I went to the cemetery a few weeks ago, I realized with the power of the internet, I can actually look up the obituaries of the people who have passed away, read some of their stories, just reflecting. I saw the grave of someone that I knew when I was a child who I didn't know had passed away from cancer. And I reflected on his life and, and thinking, thinking about who he was. But one thing that's really striking about being in a cemetery like that, and it's been pointed out in, in another book that I read recently, these people are mostly forgotten. Within a couple generations... No one remembers who they were. Some of the people, even people that did amazing things with their lives, they were an excellent local politician. But even famous politicians, governors, senators, they die, and in a few generations, the only people that remember anything they did are historians who are interested in that kind of thing. And it reminds me, number one, do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. A store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a kingdom that Jesus has established on this earth that's not fulfilled fully yet. It will be fulfilled when Jesus comes back and uh, sets everything to rights. But the work that we do to invest in the kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth 
is, is work that cannot be shaken. It's work that counts for eternity. It's work that's stored in, uh, the, in the mind of God. And there's treasure in heaven for the work that we do that is unfading and unchanging. Everything is perhaps forgotten, but the kingdom of Jesus is forever. And one pastor I listened to recently, actually in, in my small group, talked about how in heaven we're going to be sitting around and people are going to be sharing about what God did through them. We'll hear from the people we read about in the Bible, but we'll also hear from people that no one, they're rather obscure, but are great in the eyes of God because they risked greatly and they did things for God in Jesus' name and by his power and their work is remembered. Uh, think about the, the woman who broke the alabaster jar and anointed Jesus' feet. What did Jesus say about this woman? His disciples were all saying, oh, you shouldn't associate with this woman. She's a woman of the night. And Jesus said, what she has done is beautiful. Everywhere this gospel is preached, this will be remembered and spoken about. We heard about that in our cell group as well. And uh, here it is, uh, fulfilled again, thousands of years later, the story of what this woman did. It's an unshakable kingdom. The whole point of this, this cemetery talk and thinking about life being shortened, about many things being inconsequential, except for the things of God. Um, the thing that's, that sticks out most to me in regard to, to the faithfulness of, of God is that, yes, people are forgotten after one or two generations. I never knew my grandfather. He died when my dad was one. I certainly never knew my great-grandfather. I don't remember these people's stories or know them. But God's faithfulness extends beyond human lifetime. And God makes promises to people that he remembers throughout all generations. We might not have a recollection of these people, but God remembers the promises that he's made. Uh, It's very interesting in this passage in Deuteronomy 7, 8 and 9. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. You see something amazing about God's faithfulness in this that's different from human faithfulness? God remembers a promise he made, a covenant that he made to a thousand generations of people. We don't even know who our great-grandparents were or what they did for most of us, and certainly not our great-great-grandparents, but God remembers the promises he makes and he ratifies them and keeps them in his mind, and he is faithful to keep them for all these generations. And if you've ever read through the Bible, we just finished reading through the essential 100 passages of Scripture, an overview of the Bible, and what was striking to me is God remembered his covenant promises from generation to generation to generation. The people had perhaps had no recollection of these things, but God always remembered, and God was faithful. God, God kept his word over hundreds of years, over thousands of years. He remembered, he remembered, he remembered. God's faithfulness is not like our faithfulness. When God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, your descendants will be so numerous that uh, if the stars could be counted or the sand in the seashore, so would your descendants be counted. He said that to Abraham. And in the mind of God, because he made that covenant and it was based on himself, on his unchanging nature, he kept it. And that promise made to Abraham was ratified through generations and generations of biblical people. And actually, Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God, 
the fulfillment of God's plan through the whole Old Testament is the fruit of that. And we are heirs of that promise as well in the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You read the prophets. They talk about Jesus' life in exact detail before he was even born. Before he was even born. Why? Because God is faithful. When Adam and Eve sinned, and God said he'd make a provision for them, that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent would strike his heel, that was something that happened many, many years later. Because in the mind of God, that faithful promise was so reliable because it was based on God's very self. And this is just an amazing passage. God remembers. God keeps his word. Because God is unchanging. A most amazing features of the covenant God made with Abraham was in, in the ritual of making the covenant, God instructed Abraham to take animals and to kill them and to kind of uh, put the pieces of the animals uh, in, in kind of like a little alley. It sounds very morbid, but it's a, it's a ceremony, okay? The idea was they were going to strike this deal together, that, that God was going to pledge uh, this covenant. And Abraham fell asleep. Abraham fell asleep. In the middle of this whole thing, Abraham fell asleep. And isn't that uh, typical of our end of the bargain? <laughs> don't, we, don't we fall asleep? God makes a promise to keep us, to, to hold us in his hand, to keep us safe, and we just fall asleep at the wheel. But what happened in that story? God caused a torch to pass through those pieces of animals. And God said, I swear by myself, I will keep my promise. So, thousands of years of human history, this promise that God made with sleeping Abraham is kept because God swore by himself that he would keep it. And God is unchanging. And God is faithful. Does that make you feel insecure or secure about your faith in Jesus Christ to know this about God? It should make you feel very secure. Paul says in, in Romans, I believe it was, he is faithful even when we are faithless. God is faithful. God is a faithful God. It's like nothing we've ever seen before. I'd like to read to you from Hebrews six thirteen to 20. And this would be an excellent uh, little study for you to do when you're at home, talking about the certainty of God's promise. And this harkens back to the story of Abraham and connects it to the promise of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 6.13, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. This is the cultural understanding of the Jewish people. This is how life worked with oaths. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God was trying to make it within the culture of the Jews. He was trying to make it undisputably clear the nature of his promise. And so God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain 
where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to expound on all the different trappings of this, uh, this passage, but su- suffice it to say, God swore by himself to Abraham that he would fulfill his uh, covenant, and he fulfilled that covenant perfectly through Jesus Christ. And what it says is, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. The hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This promise of God is like an anchor for our soul. If you need to kind of imagine this, this uh, in a kind of a way that we can, we can picture it, it's like through Jesus, God put an anchor into his presence, a faithful promise where we can come directly to him through Jesus, and Jesus is that anchor, into the holy of holies, the most holy place the Jews can imagine, the very presence of God. God has put an anchor behind that curtain. And all of us who hold on to that anchor, to hold on to Jesus Christ, can enter into God's presence. We can be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be sustained because of God's great faithfulness. Because of that promise he made to Abraham where he swore by himself, the fruit of that promise ultimately is the anchor, Jesus Christ, being put into the presence of God. And everyone who looks to Jesus is saved by the faithfulness of God, by the covenant promise, by God's faithfulness. How awesome is God? How awesome are his promises? How unshaking are God's promises? In speaking on God's faithfulness, I'd like to talk a little bit about what God's faithfulness does not look like. A.W. Tozer, who, uh, who I love, and who really his quote is what this series is based on, that we're preaching through, he said, the most important thing about a person is that person's thoughts on God, on who God is. And from the thoughts a person holds about God, we can determine with some degree of certainty the spiritual future of that person. So, really, the truth is, and I believe this 100%, to the extent that you entertain low or high thoughts of God, or untrue or true thoughts of God, your life will go in one of two directions. I feel bad for the person who, who lives their life with wrong thoughts about God, who tells themselves things about God that are not true, because at some point the crushing weight of the truth of who God is is going to come down on that person. It's just you can't live according to what you'd like God to be like. We need to live according to who God is, because that's the only way that we can have an abundant life. Uh, otherwise, we're deluded and we're, we're just going down in, a, in, in the incorrect direction. So God has provided for us a testimony of who he is in the scriptures, his inspired word, and through Jesus Christ. I'd like to talk about what I don't mean when I say, talk about the faithfulness of God. We talked about what it is. This is what it doesn't mean. I think that when some people think about the word faithfulness or even think about God, they would never perhaps admit it or put it in this, these words exactly. They think God is like a dog. God is like a beloved pet. God is always there waiting for me to come back to him, wagging his tail happily. When I come back to him, he's relieved because he needs me so badly and his life just isn't complete without me. I mean, I'm something else. I really am. It doesn't matter how much I kick the dog or abuse the dog. The dog just unconditionally loves me. I can heap abuse on him. He'll still be wagging his tail when I come home. And that's a picture of God I think that people have. And it's true. In Luke 15, we see the father 
on the porch waiting for his son to come home. We see him uh, ex- so excited to see his son co- come home that he leaps off the porch and runs up to his son, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. And this is the joy of the father at one person who repents, right? It's true. So I can see how people could come up with this picture of God. But the first part of this passage is the son's commentary before he comes to the father. He says, I will set out and go back to my father after squandering all my wealth. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. And so he got up and went to his father. You see, God is, is not, his faithfulness cannot, should not be viewed as a robotic, sin-forgiving machine that we can always return back to after, you know, wandering away from him and, and disregarding him completely. God is someone who will show his faithfulness 1,000%, 100% to the person who comes back to him with sincerity, with a real desire to change, but to the person that treats God in a way that we wouldn't even treat another person. We kind of just expect them to, to take us back whenever we heap abuse on them. Uh, when we treat God in that way, that is not a person that should expect to find the faithful God waiting on the porch for them. How we come to God completely determines how we will be received by God because God is looking for people to sincerely repent. And, you know, we all struggle in many ways with sin and different things. I'm talking about insincerity, basic insincerity when coming to God. Some people talk about the idea of going to the confessional every week. I, I kind of got that all off my chest now for another, for another month of uh, doing whatever I feel like doing. And then I'll come back to the confessional again and talk to God about it. You know, that's an insincerity there. And, you know, when it came to the Pharisees, uh, think about Jesus. When Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. How did Jesus receive the Pharisees, who were basically insincere people? They came to him. They believed they had a righteousness that was super... Uh, it was beyond that of other people. They did not believe they needed to repent of any kind of sin. They instead tried to trap Jesus with their words, tried to make him look bad, ultimately uh, colluding with the Roman government to have Jesus put to death. These were insincere people who were, who were certainly not approaching God in, in a way that God uh, appreciated very much. And to those people that came to, to Jesus in that way, woe to you, Jesus said, you hypocrites. And this is a particularly harsh saying of Christ. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. When you've succeeded, you make them twice a son of hell as you are. That's a pretty scathing word. Because the way they approached Jesus uh, was not right. But to the person that comes to God in sincerity, the faithfulness of God just glows as a promise that's so valuable, it can't even be expressed how valuable it is. When someone comes to Jesus with sincerity... He receives them, and all the faithfulness and promises of God are poured out in their life, just like the son that came back to the father with a repentant heart. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be called, worthy to be called your son. Forgive me, essentially. The father ran and greeted that person. But to the person who's insincere, who's just meddling with things of faith, just meddling with things of faith, who is treating the sacrifice of Jesus that he spilled his blood to cover their sins with contempt by simply using it as a... <laughs> a sin-forgiveness machine to come back to time and time again, that person should not expect to receive very much from God. Not because God's not forgiving, not because God isn't faithful, but because of the way they come to God, we, we honestly wouldn't treat our worst enemy that way in the flesh. So why would we treat God that way, right? 
It says that in James 1, uh, when someone asks from God with insincerity, they're doubting, they don't really necessarily believe God's on the other end of the line when they're praying, why would that person expect to receive anything from God? It doesn't make any sense. But to the person who asks in sincerity and wholeheartedness, the faithfulness of God glows uh, with a warmth that we, uh, some of you, hopefully all of you know, have experienced the faithfulness of God uh, in your life. After a period, perhaps, of, of walking away, maybe even for months or years, you come back and you think to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to be accepted back by God. I don't know if I can come back from this. I've actually done damage to myself, my body, other people. I've got a big mess of, of problems. I don't think I can come to God. But I'll, I'll try. I'll reach out to him. And you found him faithful. You found him faithful. The person that comes to God like that, God is a redeemer. God is one who forgives. God is one who restores. God is one who restores the years the locusts have eaten. He's the one who turns our darkness into light. The Bible teaches that time and time again. Many of you have experienced that, that, that rushing, almost a sense of the, the Father running to you and greeting you with outstretched arms, saying, you're back. You're really back. That's, that's awesome. That's the heart of the Father to those who come to him in sincerity. That's the heart of the Father. So here's a couple of things I want you to take away just from what we've talked about here. This is a Tozer quote. He says, the tempted, the anxious, the fearful, the discouraged. Can you identify with any of those words? Think about that. Tempted. You know, from week to week, being tempted to different sins and feeling so torn and feeling like you're giving in. Or, the struggle is real. You're struggling in yourself. You're struggling with God, trying to be faithful, praying for strength. The tempted, the anxious who are concerned about the future, the fearful, the discouraged, the downtrodden. God can't possibly help me. They can find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is faithful. So this is great news for 100% of us if we're willing to admit it. It really is. It's great news because all of us fall into those categories time and time again. And if you've still got the fight in you, if you are sincerely trying to follow Jesus, if you're sincerely trying to put behind you the, thing, the former things and take hold of the new things of God in your life and allow God to do a work in you, there's no end to what God can do in your life. That heart. Uh, that's, it's A.W. Tozer, and this is me. Those who are basically insincere will not have the same experience. That's my deep quote. That's N.C. Detweiler. I felt like if you're really a serious theologian or Christian or preacher, you need to, you know, put your initials before your last name to be considered important. God is faithful to all of us if we're willing to admit uh, that we are number one, right? I mean number one in this list, not number one in, in the world. <laughs> I think if you, if you make the confession, I'm number one, I don't need God, my righteousness is pretty good. I'm a philanthropist. I do good things. I contribute my money to good causes. I have no need, really, of God. God basically has baptized my life with his favor because of what a wonderful person I am. <laughs> that person, number two. Ironically, those who think they're number one get number two on my list. But those who come to God, tempted, anxious, fearful, discouraged, can find a new hope, just like that prodigal son who spent years in ruining wealth and squandering his life in wild living. God is faithful. 
God is faithful. In in the Bible, you know, it says God is our Father. And in the Jewish culture, that meant a certain thing because fathers meant a certain thing in that culture. So it's important for us to understand how an original reader would understand this idea of God being father. In, in a tent community, there was one father who was kind of in charge of like a group of families, had pretty much absolute authority, had the power of adoption. So think about when the Bible says we're adopted by God, it's using this image. The father has the power of adoption. Actually, fathers in, in the Jewish community, in the tent community, they, they had the authority to adopt or not adopt their own blood children. I mean, it was absolute authority. It was pretty, pretty crazy. One of the things that was a hallmark of the father's role in that particular society was his authority to strike deals, to make bargains, to make treaties. And uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's called the berit, where the, the father would make this, this treaty. And God has made a berit with us. The father has made an, an agreement the Father has made a covenant with us. And God, who has no boundaries, you understand, God doesn't need us to be, to, for his existence. He has no boundaries. He's not constrained by the things that we're constrained by. God has obligated himself by his own choice to us through a covenant. That's an amazing thought. The God who has no boundaries has bound himself to us. And God has shown a special kind of love for us called hesed in the Hebrew. And this is informal living out of the covenant that he's made. Hesed love is a demonstration of God fulfilling over and over again faithfully what he said he would do in his covenant for his people. And those of you who know Jesus Christ know the faithfulness of God because what God promised to Abraham, what God promised to Adam and Eve, what God promised to Isaac and Jacob and to the New Testament writers, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ who we have received the fruit from. God is faithful to the covenant that he's made. And God is faithful in the big picture of our salvation. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus, the fulfillment of God's covenant, is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? Because God is faithful. He's faithful. He will do it. He says that he will do it, and he will do it. It's the fruit of the covenant he made all the way back to Abraham. He's remembered all these years. He will not forget. He does not change. It's based on his own faithfulness, not based on us fulfilling our end of the bargain perfectly, which none of us can do. But if we come to him, if we make him the Lord of our life and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we are saved because God is faithful. It's by grace. It's a gift. That's what that word means. It's a gift that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourself. It's a gift of God, not by your works, so that no one can boast. God has faithfully fulfilled his covenant. And God is also faithful in the small picture of life. There's no temptation that has overtaken us that isn't common to everyone else. So you feel like you're the only one? You're not. Everyone else is tempted in the same way as you are. Jesus was tempted just like we were too, but he was without sin. God is faithful in the small picture, not just the big picture of your salvation. From moment to moment, minute to minute, as you live out your life, God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. God is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So both in in the picture of our salvation, uh, through Jesus Christ, God is faithful to save us in that big picture way, and he's faithful to work with us from day to day, moment to moment, as we walk with him. Uh, he is faithful. He is true. So in summary, keep these things in your mind. 
this faithfulness of God thing, it is good news to all of us if we're willing to admit that we are the tempted, the anxious, the fearful, the discouraged. We can find hope and good cheer knowing that God is faithful and that God's faithfulness is not like human faithfulness, which changes with circumstances uh, and, and, and just how we feel from moment to moment. God's faithfulness is true because God is faithful based on his own unchanging nature. And if you sincerely come to him, you will find all the fruit of God's promises to be found true in your life. God's faithful to you in the big picture. He's faithful to you in your salvation. When God says that you will be saved by believing in his son, if you confess with your mouth that he's the Lord, you believe that God's raised him from the dead, you are saved by God's faithfulness. You don't have to worry about your salvation because God is faithful to his promise. He keeps promises through thousands of years of time. When everyone else has forgotten, God remembers. God is unchanging. And God's unchanging faithfulness takes care of you in the small stuff. From day to day, as you are trying to live out imperfectly your relationship with God, as you are trying to give hesed back to God, God shows love to you by keeping his covenant to you. As we try to praise him, as we try to love our neighbor as ourself, which is our way of living into that covenant God's made with us, even imperfectly, God is faithful to us in the small things. As we're tempted, as we're having difficulty, as we're struggling, as we find ourselves encumbered by and, and, and tormented by sin that we're having a hard time breaking free from, the power of God is available uh, to the person who sincerely comes to him and says, I just need your help. God is faithful. God is faithful. I'd like to invite Tim and the, and the worship band to come up and lead us in a song about God's uh, faithfulness, really his strength, uh, and what he's able to do for the person that comes to him with sincerity and with, uh, with a single-hearted, single-minded desire to follow him. Through Jesus, the strong, quote-unquote, the tempted and the weak are one in Jesus because of the faithfulness of God. Um, we who draw near to God with sincerity um, can expect the resources of God's faithfulness to pour out in their life, his forgiveness, his redemption, his light, his strength, his hope. Um, it can warm our hearts if we will but come to him in sincerity, if we will realize that what we're doing right now in our lives in two generations, maybe three, maybe less, it will be forgotten. Our house, our job, our career, the things we pursue on this earth. But the kingdom that Jesus has established cannot be shaken uh, let us live our lives for that kingdom. Building up for ourselves in treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Um, Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, in humility, uh, saying we want more, we want more of you in our lives. And to do that, we need to surrender ourselves to you and avail ourselves to you, bow to you, say, Jesus is my Lord. Um, we turn over, Lord, the dark places in our hearts, the things we've held back, and, uh, and we, we want to lay hold of all that you have for us, uh, living for things that are eternal, not for things that are temporal that will fade away and rot, even, uh, even during our lifetimes, many of those things. So we want to be a people who uh, are fully devoted to you, Lord, who are following you, living out... Uh, being the fruit of the covenant you've made with us. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. 
may each person here hear your voice, understand what you're calling them to do, and then take a risk to do it. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.